Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of The Rai Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to the music, movies, and career of slide guitar master Rai Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rai Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. Today we're talking about 1982's The Slide Area, and at the end of the episode we will also take a quick look at Cooter's commercials from the 1980s. The Slide Area was Cooter's ninth studio album or tenth solo album, depending on whether you count the live album Showtime. It is actually one of the few controversial Cooter albums. There were some unfriendly reviews at the time, and the album was as far from commercial success as almost any of his other solo work. Was the criticism justified? This much in advance, it is certainly not Cooter's most inspired record. It seems a bit as if he had maneuvered himself into a dead end at the time. He must have seen it that way himself, because after the slide area he quit making solo albums for no less than five years. Understandable, but still a pity, because even on a work like this there is a lot to discover, and there are people who even think it's his best. So here we go. Maybe 1982 was a key year for Ry Cooter. In a way, it marked the end of an era. In the music market, blues and Americana were out, synthesizers and drum machines were in. Cooter's style had changed slightly, but he was still basically doing things the old way, with one studio album a year and the odd short tour. After all, he was now enjoying true star status in both Japan and Europe. In the spring, he completed a successful European tour with an astonishing highlight. Eight sold-out shows on consecutive nights at London's Hammersmith Odeon. Warner Brothers tried to capitalize on the moment by releasing a six-song live mini-album in Europe. It was a bit of a sham, however, as two of the songs were actually from Showtime, and the supposed success was also a double-edged sword. The concerts may have sold out, but they still turned out to be a financial loss for Cooter. He had to pay extra, and he was homesick to boot. It was a dilemma, but there was a new way, and it led to the movies. Cooter had scored his first success two years earlier with The Lawn Riders. The Border, released in 1982 and discussed in our last episode, also proved to be a lucrative and satisfying project. So it's no wonder that when the road forked after the slide area, Cooter chose this path, especially since Cooter's situation at home had not improved. In the US, he was still known almost only to insiders, and the hope that this would change one day began to fade. When he talked about the state of his career in interviews, Cooter became increasingly grumpy. In a July 1982 profile for The Face, Cooter aficionado Paul Rambali described him this way. Ry Cooter is tall, like a Texan, and dry, very dry, like a margarita. Tall in both physical height and musical standing, dry in both tone of voice and sense of humor. He lives rather uneasily with his reputation, and rather at odds with the business he is part of. Like an old gunslinger in a revisionist western, his slide is no longer for hire, and he earns his living nowadays as the humble proprietor of the best medicine show in town. The profile was titled Home and Rye, and the article does indeed provide rare glimpses into Cooter's private life and views. 
We learn that he lived in Hollywood for a while, but then returned to good old Santa Monica because the beach was what made life worth living for him. He didn't appreciate things or objects, not even guitars, because they came and went. He drove a 66 Buick convertible, a little beat-up wreck of a car, as he called it. And what was his average day like? There is no such thing, I'm telling you. But let's see. I get up about 7.30 and take my boy to school about 8.15, which leads me into Midtown on the freeway. It's a terrible thing to end up on the freeway in the morning, but there I am. For the last year, I was working all the time. So I'd go from his school to the record studio or else to some damn office to use the phone. I'd work in the studio until about 5 or 6, come home, and then, you know, try to stay awake long enough to go to bed. It's a tough grind. Looking back on it now, I can see it's been an insane period. I better watch myself. So how about a little exercise to keep fit? Cooter tried cycling for a while, then swimming. But then he discovered aerobics, which was just coming into vogue at the time, a real Southern California cult thing. A completely different question. Is Rye Cooter, a self-confessed gospel fan, actually religious? Oh no, I'm not religious. I'm a humanitarian person. I believe in people, but I don't care for religion. I like the sound of gospel music. And one last question. Where does he get his Hawaiian shirts from anyway? Oh, those things. You can't get those anymore. They became a fashion item, with great scarcity value, and they became overpriced. So I don't wear them anymore. In the summertime they're cool. They are nice to wear. But it's a kind of uniform now that I loathe. I used to get them anywhere I could find them. You could get them in Hawaii. Actually, but when they started turning up in Beverly Hills boutiques for $100, it just didn't seem to make much sense. Even if it was a farewell album in some respects, the slide area was also a new beginning in two ways. Number one, Cooter wrote or co-wrote most of the songs for the first time. Thanks to his immense experience, he had learned enough about musical structures over the years. And thanks to his work on the movies, he now knew that he actually had the ability to compose. He told John Tobler and Stuart Grundy, I realized during the making of The Border that some of the stuff was okay. So I'd put myself in that frame of mind by looking at the film and seeing what was needed, and I just tried to do the same thing. But without the film, put my brain in the same sort of working order. I'm not saying I'm a songwriter, but it's something I think I can do, and maybe have good results with. Number two. For the first time, Cooter produced and recorded most of an album in his own house. The idea was to make the musicians feel more at home than at work, and that turned out fine. The band consisted mostly of Cooter regulars, Jim Keltner, John Hyatt, Jim Dickinson, Tim Drummond, and Babu Pierre returned, as did the backing vocal crew of Bobby King, Willie Green, Herman Johnson, and George McFadden. Reggie McBride and Chuck Rainey played additional bass, and Japanese flute wizard Keizu Matsui, who contributed so magically to the Southern Comfort soundtrack, returned with his shakuhachi. From a technical standpoint, the home recording wasn't perfect in all cases, so Cooter had to re-record some of it in the studio. Either way, there was no digital recording equipment involved this time. While working on Bop Till You Drop and Borderline, 
Cooter had found that while the digital master tape sounded great, the transfer to analog disc produced a rather thin sound. He didn't want to repeat that experience this time. For Cooter's son, Joachim, barely four years old at the time, the in-house production had something almost fateful about it. Because Jim Keltner would leave his drum kit up overnight when everyone went home, and Cooter Jr. would come down early in the morning and play it. One day, Keltner saw him playing and decided to give him his first kit. He still has it, and uses it sometimes. The album cover shows Cooter in profile from the side. He wears a dark jacket and has an expressionless face. Blurry lights are visible in the background, along with clouds that could be smoke or dust. With a little imagination, the picture could show a scene in which the earth has just given way behind Cooter, but that is probably a stretch. It would fit the album title though. For the slide area is not so much Cooter's guitar territory but rather the edge of California along the Pacific coast. This is how Cooter explained the title. There's an English fellow named Gavin Lambert, a screenwriter and novelist, who lived near where I lived, on the beach in LA. While he was there, he wrote a book called The Slide Area, which was a series of character studies. The idea being that in LA, you have mudslides, earthquakes, deluge rains, fires, floods, Everything happens, and he says that all these natural phenomena contribute to the insanity of the place. So he wrote about this collection of people, whom he obviously knew. He created all these characters from life, all of them very peripheral and eccentric, and it's set in the locale in that way, the slide area being where things move around all the time and are perpetually about to give way. The idea appealed to me, and I liked the book, and you could obviously also say that there's some kind of pun about slide guitar in there. But I related to it and thought it would be something to call the record, because who knows what you should call a record. The slide area has only eight tracks. Still, it lasts 39 minutes, which means that Cooter's songs gradually get a little longer. Track number one even has a 70-second intro, and it goes like this. The song is called UFO Has Landed in the Ghetto. Co-written by Cooter and Jim Keltner, it's funky and experimental in a way you probably wouldn't have expected to find on a Ry Cooter album at the time. It tells the story of an extraterrestrial, a lonesome outer space invader, who was drawn to the earth after hearing some sweet soul music on his satellite. The funky rhythm makes him jump and shout, so he lands his spaceship right in front of a ghetto nightclub. It pulls up to a big nightclub, it is UFO. The song gently lampoons disco, rap, and funk with references to George Benson and maybe even the Bee Gees. It is both a declaration of love and a farewell to the classic soul tunes that Cooter covered so often. Keltner's driving beat and the multi-layered levels of the song are something completely new. The keyboards in particular bring something alien and futuristic to the mix, which fits perfectly with a surreal theme. 
Of all things, Cooter came up with the idea for his first science fiction song while walking his dog. I walked around the block in the dark, and after about 500 feet I heard this little rhythm that my dog had, so I added some chords to it and recorded it without knowing what it was. Then you're faced with the problem of what to do with it. So I tried to imagine what it would be about, and got a picture of hurtling through space, and hearing this soul music on the satellite transmission, and going towards where it was coming from. It's a cartoon. And landing, then cruising up the street in this tiny spaceship, and people wanting to dance, because there's a sort of tradition about this spaceman that teaches everybody a new dance step. It's just a nice little idea. Watch me. A strange aside, when Rhino Records released a two-CD Rye Cooter anthology in 2008, it was called The UFO Has Landed, but the song was missing from the 34 tracks. Next up is I Need a Woman, the first of three cover songs that appear back-to-back -back on side A of the album. The original was written and performed by none other than Bob Dylan. It was originally recorded for his 1981 album Shot of Love, but when the final track list was put together, Dylan dropped the song. Much later, it was released as part of his bootleg series. In their shockingly negative review of the slide area, the new Musical Express called it, Easily the worst song that Old Religious Inc. has ever written, and reviving it virtually constitutes grave robbing. Dylan's song has two levels, a religious contemplation and a very worldly desire. The feverish opening locates the singer in a trench that seems to be slowly filling with water. Later, the song mysteriously does not return to this, but turns to the religious thoughts of the protagonist. He is searching for God's truth, but is unsure if he will ever find it. Faith may be able to move mountains, but he would rather not talk about it with the wrong people. It could backfire. So it becomes clear that Dylan is ready to leave behind the extremely religious phase that began for him in the late 70s. The second level of the song then deals with his longing for a woman he has had his eye on for years. He hopes that she will accept him exactly as he is. Two of Cooter's regular musicians were part of Dylan's band when he recorded I Need a Woman. Tim Drummond on bass and Jim Keltner on drums. So there must have been some kind of connection. Dylan and Cooter also knew each other. They had met back in the 60s when the rising suns were causing a stir at the Ash Grove in L.A. All of this eventually led to Dylan handing the song over to Cooter. Cooter then rewrote some of the lyrics with Dylan's approval, making the song a little more straightforward. There is an important change right at the beginning. It is no longer raining in the trenches. Instead, it is now raining in the singer's mouth. Along with the fire in his nose, this could be a symptom of a cold. But to me, he always just sounded very horny. I've been raining in my mouth all day And it's dripping down to my clothes 
Keltner and Drummond returned for Cooter's version, with Jim Dickinson on keyboards. It is darker and edgier than Dylan's version, which is more reminiscent of the keyboard-heavy basement tapes. Cooter adds an extra verse. He and his new queen drive through the night in a Cadillac Eldorado. They look down on the feudal world, pierce the storm. But before the scene gets too dramatic, he reminds her to bring along her checkbook just in case they get arrested. That's your car-loving, wise-cracking ride cooter for you. Riding out with me at midnight, like two Spanish desperados. Gazing down upon the futile world in the Cadillac Eldorado. Where we penetrate the storm in search of truth that has not been tested. But you better bring along a checkbook just in case we get arrested. The next song also has a wound in the title and a protagonist who is also in need of said woman. In this case, it's a gypsy woman, a term that today is considered a racial slur, but was much more innocent when the song was first recorded in 1961. Written by the Impressions lead singer Curtis Mayfield, the song is about a man who is part of a traveling caravan, falls in love with a gypsy woman they meet along the way. Mayfield was probably inspired by the Western movies he liked. He later claimed that he wrote Gypsy Woman when he was 12 years old. It was the first song the Impressions recorded without Jerry Butler, who had fronted the group in the 50s but left to pursue a solo career. The song was a hit, and the Impressions soon became regulars on the charts, with 30 more Hot 100 entries in the 60s. From nowhere, through a caravan, around campfire light, a lovely woman in motion With hair as dark as night Her eyes were like that of a cat in the dark That hypnotized me with love She was a gypsy woman Unlike in I Need a Woman, this time Cooter's focus is not on raw desire but on romantic feeling. This protagonist is hopelessly in love, with no prospect of his wishes ever coming true. How I'd love to hold her near And kiss and forever whisper in her ear I'd love Got to have the next song, the rock and roll classic Blue Suede Shoes, was a big hit for Elvis Presley in 1956, but was actually written and recorded by Carl Perkins a year earlier. Originally a country singer from Tennessee, he successfully mixed rock with hillbilly music. This earned him the nickname King of Rockabilly. He signed with Sun Records in 1954 and a year later toured the South with Elvis and Johnny Cash. Backstage, Cash regaled Perkins with stories from his military service in Germany, including one about a black staff sergeant who spoke of his regulation footwear as blue suede shoes and warned all comers not to step on them. Cash told Perkins to write a song about shoes, 
and although Perkins didn't know anything about shoes, he did after overhearing a guy at a college dance say, Don't step on my suede shoes. Perkins started the song with a nursery rhyme. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, now go cat go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. You can do anything but they offer my blue suede shoes. Well, you can knock me down, step in my face, slander my name all over the place, and do anything that you want to do. The song was released on New Year's Day 1956. It charted on both the country and rhythm and blues charts and reached number two on Billboard's main pop chart that March. But then tragedy struck. On his way to perform on a television show, Perkins was involved in a car accident. A truck driver was killed and the singer was seriously injured. With Perkins in the hospital and unable to promote his single, it was overtaken at number one by Elvis major label debut, Heartbreak Hotel. Presley covered Blue Suede Shoes on his album that same month, and his label wanted to release it as a single. Initially reluctant to compete with his friend for sales, he relented when he realized that the songwriting royalties would support Perkins during his recovery. Step on my blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything but take me over my blue suede shoes. Let's go, Cat! In the decades that followed, the song was covered by everyone from the Beatles to Black Sabbath to Jimi Hendrix to Bruce Springsteen. Cooter's version turns the two-minute rocker into a five-minute epic. It has another long intro. The song is played considerably slower than by Perkins or Presley. On the chorus, he is supported in typical fashion by his backup combo. As a new songwriter in his own right, Cooter even adds an extra verse to the classic. Set on Memphis' famous Beale Street, it raises the bar for the proud shoe wearer in terms of suffering. Side 2 begins with a Cooter original. It is called Mama Don't Treat Your Daughter Mean and may very well have been inspired by some of the traditional blues songs Cooter covered early in his career. Songs like Police Dog Blues by Blind Blake or Act Sweet Mama by Sleepy John Estes, which tell the stories of lonely drifters who get involved with the wrong women. The title could also come from Mama He Treats Your Daughter Mean by Ruth Baker, which in turn was probably inspired by the one-dime blues sung by both Blind Lemon Jefferson and Blind Willie McTell. Cooter's song is about a man who is in love with a 16-year-old girl who he first saw when she was still in Sunday school. Let's hope he's the same age. 
After he makes love to her in the pale moonlight, her parents get on his trail. In a great final twist reminiscent of the girls from Texas from Borderline, our hero is shot in the back by her father in the final verse. So again, Cooter borrows from the hard-boiled crime novels he liked to read at the time. Very dark and very funny. Even funnier and much darker is I'm Drinking Again, written by Cooter and Keltner. Told from the perspective of a recovering alcoholic, the song is about good intentions that are doomed to failure. He wants to give it up, but he does it again and again. Neither the doctor's warnings nor his partner's threats help. He makes her big promises, but then he pushes her around and finally gets his punishment. I came home last night about half past four. Whole neighborhood was rocking all on my floor And my baby was working up a hundred sheep Through the teenage born and lived down the street I grabbed a bottle, he grabbed a gun I heard somebody holler, shoot him for he run And that's the reason why I'm drinking again Tell everybody as a never-make-your-move-too-soon from Borderline, he uses the lyrics for an ambiguous message that is at least partly about Cooter's role as a musician. The man is tired of trying to be number one, and that may well be the reason Cooter stopped making soul albums for the next five years. Next up is the album's highlight, which came first. It's another original song, but this time Cooter co-wrote it with blues great Willie Dixon. Along with Muddy Waters, Dixon defined the sound of Chicago blues. A prolific songwriter, especially during Chess Records' heyday, his songs were performed by a who's who of blues royalty, including Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, and Little Walter. Some of his best songs were Hoochie Coochie Man, Little Red Rooster, and I Can't Quit You Baby which came first is about nothing less than the apocalypse. It is a sad and angry swan song to humanity, which destroys everything, whether out of love or hate. As in the first song of the album, an alien appears, but he doesn't come to dance, but to shoot with his ray gun. The lyrics are like a dark sparkling jewel, poetic and sinister. At the same time, the piece has a fascinating rhythm and an innovative orchestration that is a perfect showcase for Kazumatsu Shakuhachi. In his all-music review of the slide area, Bob Gottlieb wrote, Listen to the groove on which came first, and try to keep your body from bobbing to the strong rhythm laid down by Jim Keltner, Temp Drummond, and the background vocalists. While we are on the subject of vocals, this is one of Rai Cooter's best efforts, and his backup vocalists are key here and deserve special recognition. Bobby Kane, John Hyatt, Willie Green, and Herman Johnson. Everybody shake hands, 
The album Closer is called That's the Way Love Turned Out for Me. It has no connection or resemblance to the 1968 Song of the Same Name by James Carr. Instead, it was written by Cooter with the writing team of Dave Hall and Quentin Clonch. Clonch was responsible for founding High Records in the 1950s and Goldwax Records in the 1960s. If you are hoping for a more upbeat ending, this song will probably disappoint you. It tells another sad story of lost love. Once again, a relationship is destroyed and our hero loses everything. His love, his house, his hope. People in love build a house they can share. Takes a long time to get it just right. But a fire can start in the kitchen somewhere. And burn that little house down. Overnight That flame burning bright In your heart I believe The slide area was released in June 1982. It peaked at number 105 on the Billboard 200 and was, as already mentioned, a commercial disappointment. Not only that, but the album got some of the worst reviews Cooter had ever received. The New Musical Express wrote, after more than a decade of recording as a featured artist, Ry Cooter has finally forgotten himself sufficiently to record and release something which could only be described as just another Ry Cooter album. The slide area is a reduction of its predecessor Borderline in a manner that Borderline just avoided becoming a reduction of its predecessor, the justifiably illustrious bop till you drop. If the slide area is any indication, then he's sorely in need of some outside stimulation. Peel the old soak off his stool, Take him somewhere he's never been before, and don't let him back home until he's learned a few new tunes. In Rolling Stone, Fred Schroers took the same line. On the slide area, Cooter himself has taken over the bulk of the songwriting chores, and the results are disappointing. UFO has landed in the ghetto is bloodless funk with unfunny lyrics, and Mama Don't Treat Your Daughter mean finds Cooter the songwriter striking an awkward ethnic pose. He also shares a writing credit with bluesman Willie Dixon, on which came first, a knockoff Dixon doesn't need in his admirable resume. Even the covers don't work this time out. There's a Dylan throwaway, a lead-footed reading of Curtis Mayfield's Gypsy Woman, and a positively ghastly version of Blue Sweet Shoes. The slide area will be easily forgotten as soon as the next good new Ry Cooter album hits the shelves. Robert Christgau didn't have so many kind words either. From racially suspect novelty number to street legal tribute to immodest claims on Gypsy Woman and Blue Swede Shoes, Side One is Weird Old Rye at his most misguided. Despite a topical update on Willie Dixon's Which Came First, Side Two is Rye the company folk rocker trying to squeeze his weird old self into a formula that wasn't really commercial when the company devised it. In the UK, the slide area was a top 20 hit and as part of that year's European tour. Cooter played his impressive eight-night run at the Hammersmith Odeon. Despite such conspicuous success, 
Cooter's cult status did not translate into the kind of mass appeal he obviously desired, and incredibly, he even claimed to have lost money on these shows. In 1988, he told Hugh Magazine, It was a stupid thing to do. I got so poor doing that, you can't even believe. Spent all my money on hotel rooms. Pathetic. It looked terrific, sure. However, the fact is I could never make a dime doing anything. Touring, I lost money. I came back to California. I was in debt. I'd come back, make a record, and I'm broke because they're not making any money. They don't sell. You get to a point where you ask, why should I abuse myself? Leave my family at home, and I miss them. I miss my house. I wasn't enjoying what I was playing. I wasn't liking what I was hearing, and I wasn't getting any kickback from the world at large. So I thought, this has just become an unpleasant experience, and I'll leave it alone for a while. So Cooter promptly returned to Santa Monica and drifted into a full-time day job scoring movies. And for that matter, the odd commercial. He was in particularly high demand in Japan. For example, for the Lonesome Carboy line of component car audio, which was also released worldwide as Pioneer Component, much of the advertising focused on the lifestyle of the American Southwest. Actor Warren Oates, who also starred in the Cooter Scored the Border, was the original face of the line. He starred in a series of TV commercials, standing in the desert or shooting a Budweiser can. These spots already featured Cooter's music from Bop Till You Drop. But when Oates passed away suddenly in 1982, Cooter became the new lonesome carboy. In this role, he did a lot of photo shoots showing him standing in the desert. He looked, well, lonesome. He also did TV commercials. In one of them, he stands in a Hawaiian shirt in front of a vintage car on a dirt desert road. If he wasn't chewing gum and blowing a big pink bubble, he could almost be Bruce Willis in Last Man Standing. The music comes from the border. But here it is not Freddie Fender who sings across the borderline, but Cooter himself. And it's just across the borderline When it's time to go to the wife was recording the photos of the child on tape Pioneer Component Car Stereo Lonesome Carboy Another Lonesome Carboy ad showed him standing on a New York street wearing a black trench coat and looking kind of lost while a series of yellow cabs passed behind him driving through clouds of smoke like in the movie Taxi Driver. Cooter even wrote a little song for the ad. Big city where the cement grows Came to town just to see the shows Crazy people taking off their clothes New York the river is not a river. Even funnier are the ads Cooter did for early times whiskey. In true superstar fashion, you see him sitting at a table with a bottle of whiskey in his hands, humming a tune, looking off into the distance, and then playing some slide.
The early times commercials must be from the mid-80s. They clearly reference Cooter's Paris, Texas score. In another, you see him playing the tune on the guitar. Then he puts down the guitar, grabs a glass, and gives us a commanding look. In a 1987 interview with the Los Angeles Times, Cooter said, I've done a fair amount of commercials. I did a bunch of Champion Spark plug ads and Levi's and Molson beer. To score a commercial is extremely painstaking because you have to be great for 30 seconds or 60 seconds, and that can be just as good as anything. So I like all that kind of junk. Any job to me is interesting if I can get a handle on it. For the Molson beer ad, Cooter actually re-recorded his Paris, Texas tune. He was surprised at how many cigarette and car companies wanted to sell their products with that kind of music. But the money wasn't so good. The Molson job, for example, had a very small fee. Cooter said he invested it in a new lemon tree for his front yard. One of Cooter's classic Levi's 501 commercials is on YouTube. For the first time in history, Levi's shrink to fit button fly 501 jeans are cut especially for women. In the only shrinking denim that tailors itself in the wash to fit every curve, like no denim you've ever worn. Shrink to fit 501s, now in the junior department from Levi's Women's Wear. The ad shows a woman in a convertible, apparently waiting for a man named Travis, who is about to leave the farmhouse in the background. This was a very influential commercial in 1981. Reportedly, some viewers even named their sons after Travis, while others pondered the deeper meaning of the phrase. In fact, the scene was a quote from the James Dean movie Giant. Was it just a coincidence that three years later the main character in Paris, Texas was also named Travis? And that brings us to the end of episode 16 of the Rye Cooter story. Thanks for listening. Before we turn to said Travis and discuss 1984's Paris, Texas, our next episode will look at Cooter's 1983 live and session work. The gunslinger may not have pulled the trigger as often as he used to, but he still hit the mark every now and then. This was the case, for example, on Eric Clapton's Money and Cigarettes. After that, Cooter not only toured with Clapton, but also with Dwayne Eddy, Randy Newman, and John Hyatt. What a year. So I hope you will tune in again in two weeks. In the meantime, follow us on social media. And as always, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. Levels start at just a dollar or a euro. That would be greatly appreciated. As always, you can find all the links in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. <laughs>